All right, a couple of quick updates. I know some of you are saying, I thought we were in Mark, and we are. So turn to Mark chapter 7. We will eventually go to Philippians uh, 4 to end the um, message with today. But uh, go to Mark chapter 7. We're going to look at three different narratives, or as some people call them, pericopes in Mark. But a couple quick updates. Uh, gonna give you, uh, was going to give you an update today about uh, what's going on with the property and, and the uh, capital campaign and all that, but decided to wait till next Sunday because um, Cody and I and a couple of others are meeting with the architect on Tuesday, and I think we'll just have m- more uh, information at that time. So next Sunday, I'll share that update with you. And then a lot of you have been asking about the whole crutch thing and the sitting and the boots and all that stuff. I went to the doctor Wednesday and got new x-rays and said that the alignment is perfect, everything's going fine, but uh, I just need a couple more weeks in the boot and on crutches for longer distances and uh, things like that. So I do have my crutches back there, but I can walk around short distances just in the boot. Um, I'm leaving for Iowa on Thursday the 23rd, and, and he said, well, take the crutches in the boot. You'll get on the plane first, which is really cool. So there are some perks to um, foot surgery. Anyway, so that's kind of where I'm at. Hopefully by uh, the end of September, I'll be out uh, jogging a little bit again. That's kind of the, the game plan at, at this point right now. Um, so today we have three related narratives from the Gospel of Mark, starting at, at, uh, at Mark 7, 24. Uh, there, we encounter another person with an unclean spirit, so somebody who has a, a desperate physical need. Then we encounter somebody with a, with a tremendous physical challenge, somebody who can't hear and can't speak. So this is a tremendous physical challenge that, that Jesus uh, works with. And then uh, we have another telling of another time when Jesus feeds thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and, and some fish, uh, in, in which it demonstrates that Jesus also meets our everyday needs. He's meeting a need for them that in their context, they literally, when, when Jesus says, pray every day for your daily bread, um, literally they would have to do, most people had to do that in the first century. They weren't always sure where their next meal was going to come from. People got paid by the day, and it was, it was challenging. We take for granted this, this daily physical need of hunger in, in our culture that we live in today. We're not worried about where our next meal is necessarily going to come from, but rather we're worried about making the choice as to where that next meal is going to come from. Uh, is it going to be from one of the fine restaurants in Arcadia? Or are we going to go home and make something? Uh, we don't have a problem with a lack of food. We have more of a problem with an abundance of food. In 2014, the diet industry in the United States grew to a $70 billion industry. So we're spending $70 billion trying to figure out how to not eat as much as we normally do. And so, but in their day, they didn't have that problem. They, they, didn't, they didn't have the Atkins diet or anything like that. They were just concerned about whether they were going to get a little bit of bread uh, each day. But all three of these narratives point in the same direction, and that is that Jesus is the ultimate meter I'm sorry, I made up another word, I know. But he is the ultimate meter of every one of our needs. All of our needs, physical and spiritual. And therefore, we can be content. And that's why we're going to eventually get to Philippians chapter 4, where Paul talks about how he has learned to be content because he can do all things through Christ Jesus who gives him strength. And that first uh, narrative that we're going to look at is, is the story about this Syrophoenician woman in Tyre who Jesus kind of starts out by calling her a dog. It's, a, it's an interesting narrative. We're going to spend most of our time uh, in that particular narrative of the three. But before we read that text, we need to talk about the context of this story. Um, 
we, we, have to, we have to be willing to dig into context. This is so important when it comes to understanding and interpretation. Last week we talked about how Jesus spent 23 verses explaining to the professional religious people and to his disciples, and then Mark records it for us, that it's, it's not what's outside of you that's going to make you clean or unclean. There's nothing in this world that can really make you unclean or clean, but rather it's what's inside of you. It's your heart that makes you clean or unclean. And therefore, the only thing that can make you clean is a change in your heart, a transition in your heart. God coming along and through Jesus Christ and the work of his Holy Spirit, inserting a new heart into you. That's the only thing that can change hearts and renew minds is the gospel. The only thing that makes us clean. And so he gets done teaching that and then he heads to Tyre, which is 40 or 50 miles north uh, west of, of, of Galilee where he had been. And he encounters this woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit, a, a demon, and the mother wants help. And so Jesus is just going to continue to make this point. Nothing outside of us is what will make us clean. All, all the salvation and the fulfillment, uh, all the joy that we're looking for in the things of this world or in some moral code or, or law that we're going to keep in order to make us clean or make us a better person, none of that is ever going to work. None of that is going to help us. We can't keep a moral law or a code. We can't even keep our own moral code that we come up with for ourselves. Uh, we can't eat or exercise our way to salvation. We cannot image manage ourselves into God's goods, good graces. Uh, the way Jesus would say it is you can't whitewash a tomb and and, or, or the way it says in Proverbs, it's like putting a gold ring in a pig's snout. None of that works. But we're also going to see in this story of the Syrophoenician woman, and in the next story as well, that God has grace for everyone through Jesus Christ. We need to see that. We need to see this transition that Mark takes us through. And I know some of you are like, man, I've been listening to Frank for a few months or maybe a couple of years, whatever. He's really obsessed with context. He thinks that's really important, and, and it is. Context is so important, especially in our culture and in our, our environment today. You've you got to dig into context to really understand meaning and interpretation. Um, one of my favorite analogies is for years people have said in the real estate business, uh, the three most important rules of real estate are what? Location, location, location. Well, the three most important rules of meaning and understanding and communication are context, context, context. You have to understand the context. And that's hard. Being in the communication discipline, I teach at, at Fuller and I teach at Paradise Valley Community College, one of the biggest challenges that's facing our discipline right now is trying to help people understand in this digital world where we just have sound bites and we have Twitter feeds and we have bumper stickers and everybody's trying to figure out how to get everything down to just a few words is, is to help people understand that everyone, every one of those little sound bites has a context. And you need to dig into the context to find out if the meaning that you're taking from that little sound bite is true and right. And so it takes a little bit of work to dig into context, right? It's easier to not have to worry about context, but if you really want to know what's going on, you have to dig into context. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at these three stories, spending the most of time on the first one, really digging into the context, and then we'll answer the big so what question at the end. So here's this first story of the Syrophoenician woman, starting in verse 24. And from there, he, Jesus, arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house, and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. Jesus wanted a little bit of a retreat, and so he kind of moves away, but didn't work. 
his fame had preceded him. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, a demon, heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a non-Jew, a Syrophoenician by birth. So Paul, uh, I'm sorry, Mark makes the point she's not just a Gentile but a Syrophoenician. So that must be important that he would go to that length. And she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And Jesus said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she said, the woman said to Jesus, answered him and said, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And Jesus said to her, for this statement, you may go on your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found that the child was lying in bed and the demon was gone. So Jesus is now, like I said, northwest of Galilee in a decidedly uh, Gentile area. Jesus really gets around geographically in these texts that we're going to look at. And the city of Tyre uh, was formerly a part of the region known as Phoenicia, the greater region known as Phoenicia, which uh, was notoriously antagonistic for centuries to Israel and to the Jews. They were second only to the Philistines in terms of antagonizing the Jews. And the Jews really just could not stand these people. It was also, uh, as far as the Jews were concerned, it was a wholly pagan uh, area, just very pagan in the worst way that the Jews considered the people who lived here completely uncivilized. And so there's no way that the Messiah would ever go to a place like this. He shouldn't be in a place like this. This is a very unclean place, uh, not supposed to be there. And so really I think this story is first and foremost about the comprehensive and boundless love of Jesus that he would, that he would go there and that he would be willing to minister to this woman. And it's not the first time we've seen an unclean spirit. It's not the first time we've seen a, a parent who, who's, who's desperate. And the last person to fall at Jesus' feet was the last desperate parent. That was Jairus. But think about the contrast, contrast between Jairus, who is the president of the synagogue, and this woman, this Syrophoenician woman. Uh, Jairus had status and position and power and wealth and, and fame. This woman had none of those things, absolutely None of those things. And so when you start comparing his stature to her stature, you begin to realize that Jesus doesn't play any favorites. And in fact, in, in, in the book of Acts, at, in chapter 10, you know, it finally dawns on Peter that, that God does not play any favorites. In, in 10, 34, and 35, he opened his mouth and he says, truly now I understand that God does not play uh, favorites. He doesn't show any partiality. And we also must acknowledge the incredible boldness with which this woman comes to Jesus. She knows that she's at best a second-class citizen compared to this, this, rab, this Jewish rabbi, this male, this, this man from this very religious, uh, pious place. And she's a Gentile, and she's a woman, and she's from Tyre. History records that in the first century, um, many rabbis would wake up in the morning and the first prayer that they would say to God was a prayer of thanksgiving that went like this, Lord, I thank you that you did not make me a Gentile, a woman, or a slave. And this person, this Syrophoenician woman, is at least two of those things and yet she's going to the rabbi. She knows that she's unclean and her daughter is unclean. Everything about the status of Jesus is screaming at this woman, stay away, stay away. You have no business going there. Uh, Tim Keller comments on this. He writes, Do you know why this woman had a sudden burst of boldness? Well, there are cowards, and there are regular people, and there are heroes. And then there are parents. Parents are not really on the spectrum from cowardice to courage, because if your child is in jeopardy, you simply do what it takes to save her. 
But this encounter has had a bad reputation for a very long time. People with very little, I've heard this so many times in just casual conversation and even preached this way. People with little understanding and no context want to blast Jesus for his apparent harsh and cold treatment of this woman. But the problem is, is that you don't really understand the context. You, you, need to, you need to dig into the context and try to understand the meaning of what's going on here in their culture before we begin to explain to Jesus how much smarter and more compassionate we are than he is. And it does essentially start with Jesus saying, calling the woman a dog. And, and, and most of us know that in Jewish lore and in the Old Testament, there may be no animal more despised to a rabbi than a dog. And some would say, well, what about a pig? Okay, they're about on equal planes for a rabbi. Pig, dog, not much of a difference for a rabbi. In Philippians chapter 3, uh, Paul is very upset with the people he calls the Judaizers, and he calls them dogs, and it is the absolute worst insult that he could have for them. In Luke chapter 16, in the, in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, when it talks about how the rich man would enjoy himself at these lavish banquets, and Lazarus would sit with the dogs underneath the tables, hoping for a crumb to fall his way. The, the word there for dogs that Jesus used was miserable scavengers. But just like today, we need to remember that there are terms and idioms that are used for all sorts of different reasons. There's, you can use them pejoratively. You can use them to compliment. You can use them to, to try to cast a, a more graphic image. You can use them to compare and contrast. You can use them to clarify when I was originally putting together this message, I actually had three pages of typed idioms and sayings that we uh, use in American vernacular that relate to dogs. Three pages. I cut it down to half a page just to get us out of here on time today, okay? So here, just, just to give you an idea, okay, here you go. That guy's a bulldog. Is that an insult or is that a compliment? She has puppy dog eyes. Every dog has his day. Can't teach an old dog new tricks. She'll get it done. She works like a dog. What's up, dog? <laughs> she is the top dog. They are clearly the underdogs. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world. I am dog-tired, or I'm tired, dog. One time, when I, when I was a kid, I, when I grew, I just ever since I was a little kid, it, on into high school, my dad would get home from work when he was in town around 5.15 every night, and we would play one-on-one -on -one basketball. That was kind of our routine. And, and when I was a little kid, he would let me win sometimes. And then when I got a little bit bigger, he wanted to teach me about life and all that stuff. So I never I went for years never winning. And then when I got 13, 14 years old, I actually outgrew him and I started hitting my uh, jump shot and everything. And now I could really compete and I was, I was starting to beat him with some regularity. And, 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 and I, had a, I had a pretty good outside jump shot. And one day we were playing and I hit a, a, a really long shot. I mean, this would have been like a four-pointer in the NBA, if I may say so myself. And, 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 and it goes through the net and he just turns to me and he goes, you dog. He just called me a dog, you know. So was Jesus' statement to this woman really derogatory? You see, you and I, we need to be careful of sitting here today without any knowledge of context, folding our arms, and wagging our finger at Jesus in judgment. So hang in there. There's some things that we need to look at here. For instance, uh, Matthew also tells this story, but he adds a couple of details. One of the details that he adds is that Jesus at one point says to the woman, I was not sent here as the incarnation of God. I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. 
But now what do you do? Because now they're in decidedly Gentile territory. The only Jews that are around there probably are the disciples who are with Jesus. Why? He's also been to the Decapolis, which is a decidedly Gentile area. And he's helping people. He's saving Gentiles. He's working with Gentiles. Well, you and I, who are on the other side of all these stories, we didn't live in the story. We read about these stories. We're on the other side of it. We've known from the beginning that eventually the the Gentiles were going to be a part of the kingdom of God. But we also know from reading scripture that there's kind of an order, not, not really a priority. There's just kind of this order that we hear about from people like Jesus and from Paul. For instance, Jesus says in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he says to his disciples right before his ascension, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, primarily Jewish, and in Judea, primarily Jewish, and in Samaria. Uh-oh. The Jews hated the Samarians, hated them. We're going to go and witness to them. They're going to be part of the kingdom of God too? Yes, and to the whole world, to the rest of the world. So everybody, everybody gets to be included in this. But you can kind of see that there's a bit of an order. Uh, Paul references this order in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So you can kind of see that there's an order. And what's interesting about this story, I'm going to give you a little preview, is that the woman gets it. In her little matching of wits with Jesus, she's demonstrating to Jesus that she understands what he's saying, there's an order, and she's saying, yeah, I get the order, and I'm okay with that. I just want mine a little bit earlier than I'm necessarily supposed to get. Some people would say that this is the most intellectual conversation Jesus has with anybody in the Gospel of Mark. And that includes the professional religious people and his disciples. This woman, the Syrophoenician woman, got nothing going for, matches wits with the Savior. Now this word study. The Greek here that's used for the word dog in verse 27 is way different than all these other uses that we've discussed in the Hebrew and Greek. Okay? This one that Jesus uses here is little pet puppy dog, one that would be found welcome in most households. This is not the universally despised kind of scavenger dog that's found in Philippians 3 or Luke 16. Alan Black writes about verse 27 and says this, The form of Jesus' statement is a parable, and the basis of the parable is not antipathy for Gentiles, but rather the necessary Jewish focus of Jesus' earthly ministry. Jesus is merely asking this woman through this little parable to accept and have faith in the divine plan for salvation and that she's going to be a part of the kingdom of God, but later. And she does accept that, but she also says, but I'd really like to see if maybe we could move that date up a little bit to like right now. Which takes us to the second point, the matching of the wits. The word that Jesus uses in verse 27 for children literally means like a biological child, somebody that, 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 that's a relative of yours that, that has a DNA connection. But the word she uses in her retort means all of the household children, including servants, stock animals, and pets. It's an inclusive term that shows that she understands the order of the messianic salvation and the divine plan and the Jewish privilege and that she accepts it and embraces it. James Edwards even comments that she seems to understand the Messiah's purpose, the Messiah's mission, and the order of all of this even better than the professional religious people and his disciples who had been walking with him by this time for two years. So I think you and I need to stop dogging Jesus for his dog comment and just concentrate on the context here. 
And now that we're out of the weeds of that discussion, we can get to what this passage is really about. Here's what it's really about. Jesus saves, period. That's it. He's the only salvation. He's the only one. You don't think this woman went to every clinic, every psychologist, every dietitian, every nutritionist, every Walgreens, every emergency room that there was in Tyre and Sidon trying to get help for her, for her daughter. She went to every possible worldly thing. And, and it's Jesus that comes to save. And here are some amazing things about this woman. She's the first person in the Gospel of Mark to actually understand a parable of Jesus. Not even his disciples. She also doesn't take offense to what Jesus says. She doesn't moan and yell about her rights being violated and Jesus, you sound so mean and you're so toxic and I don't know if I can hang out with you. Neither does she tell Jesus to give her what she deserves based on her goodness. I'm a really good person, Jesus. If you just got to know me, I'm, 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 a really, good, I'm really good deep down and you, just, you need to save me because I'm a good person. Rather, she says, as all of us should say, Jesus, don't give me what I deserve, but give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness, based on the fact that you've already done everything, based on the fact that you've already fulfilled the law. I don't have to do anything, and through your blood, I have been cleansed. Give me what I don't deserve based on your goodness. This woman gets it the way no one else has. I'm, I'm going to use a word now that a lot of people don't like to use about the Bible and characters in the Bible. Go ahead and email me. This woman is kind of a New Testament hero, if you want to put it into that vernacular. And she should be a good example for all of us. She, under, she gets it. She says, Jesus, you're God. I'm going to submit to you, your plan, everything, and I'm going to come to you with my needs. And so she demonstrates that we can find our spiritual needs met in Jesus, but then here's this man in the next uh, narrative who has a, a very large physical challenge. And Mark tells us that Jesus returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. So this is a long journey from the, the shores of the Mediterranean back across east of the, the River Jordan. So probably 80, 90, 100 miles back into uh, the Decapolis. And so they're back into Gentile territory again. And they brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged Jesus to lay hands on him. And taking the man aside from the crowd privately, Jesus put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue. And looking up into heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephaphtha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened and his tongue released and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He, Jesus, has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So again, they're back in, this, uh, in another area where there's lots of Gentiles. And then you compare and contrast this Syrophoenician woman to this, this man who doesn't, also doesn't have a name and, and, and can't hear and can't speak. The woman approaches Jesus very boldly. This man had to be dragged to him. In the Greek, you will see that the verb that's used there, is, is, it's, it, it really is communicating the idea that he didn't really want to go. That his friend said, no, we got to take you, we got to take you. He's like, ah. And the scholars are saying that this guy had probably been a spectacle in his community for years and years and years and was just tired of being the center of attention because of his problems. 
And so he was really sort of dragged to him. And so one scholar, as I'm reading, he talks about how circumstantially we all come to Jesus differently. Substantially, it's the same. The Holy Spirit works in our lives. God regenerates our hearts. Substantially, the gospel works the same. But circumstantially, it looks different for every one of us. Some people, it seems like they come very purposely to Jesus. Others almost by accident, and I don't like that word accident when it comes to the gospel because anything that God is involved in is not an accident or a coincidence. Nevertheless, it might look like that. And so the circumstances of coming to Jesus are very different, but there is some great consistency here that I want to dwell on for a minute, and that's this. Jesus demonstrates in these two narratives that he knows our needs individually, and he knows that each of us have different individual needs. He goes through almost a ritual with this man, this weird ritual of taking him aside and doing all this nonverbal stuff. With the woman, he just spoke, and, and the demon leaves his daughter. But both got what they needed, right? He met them differently, but both got what they needed. It reminds me of John chapter 11. Lazarus, not the same Lazarus in the parable in Luke 16, but Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha, has died. And, and, and uh, Mary and Martha are kind of upset with Jesus because they sent word to him and he didn't come. And four days after Lazarus is dead, he's in the tomb now, Jesus comes strolling along. Okay, here I am. And both Mary and Martha go and approach Jesus separately with the same question. Martha goes first and she says, Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, our brother would not have died. And what does Jesus do to Martha? He, he gives her like a stern rebuke. She says this to him, and, and he says, I am the resurrection and life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, will live. He kind of rebukes her and pushes her back a little bit. A few minutes later, Martha, Mary comes, says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. Well, how does Jesus respond to, to Mary? He breaks down and starts weeping. Shows great compassion. He knows exactly what we need. He knows that we have different needs. And he knows exactly what those needs are, and so he treats us differently, which drives some of us crazy. Because some of us believe that the definition of fairness is that everybody gets treated the same. Our lead pastor over all of our congregations, Tyler Johnson, is, is like famous for saying this. Fairness actually means treating people differently, not the same. If you want to be treated exactly the same as everybody else, be prepared for some of your needs to never be met. Amen? Jesus knows this about us. Now, he may not always give us what we want, and, and the way we are, we, we seem to have this, this proclivity for reclassifying so many of our wants into needs, okay? I need a new 2017 Lexus. Not even out yet, but I know I need it. My lease is coming up on my Jetta. He may not give us what we want, but he always gives us what, he need, what we need, and he knows better than we do what, what we need. And, and so, like I said, this man was likely a spectacle all of his life in this community. And so when he comes to Jesus, Jesus pulls him away from the crowd. And, and I think Jesus gives him what this man wanted more than anything. He wanted privacy and intimacy. Get, get him away from the limelight and just, and just be with him. And then he works, he works, by working through these nonverbal cues, it's like he identifies with the man emotionally as well. The man needed this. He needed, he needed to know that Jesus understood exactly where he was coming from. He's identifying with the man through this nonverbal dialogue. And then some of you say, but what about the spittle? Last week you said that saliva was unclean, and yet he uses it to heal this guy. That's really interesting, isn't it? 
There's a couple possible explanations. I favor one over the other. The first one that is viable, but I don't quite favor, is that uh, some, some scholars have written that, 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 now this guy's a Gentile, so he wouldn't know this necessarily, but some Jews actually believed that there were certain rabbis whose spit had healing powers. And if they could go to that rabbi and get their spit on their sore, that it might heal them. So I think translating that into 21st century church, you know, some pastors have spit that can, never mind, we're not going there. Anyway, so that's possible, okay? But I think this explanation is more likely. Isn't it just like Jesus to use what the Jews think is unclean to clean this guy up? To save this, isn't that? And because it's not the spit that's saving him anyway, it's Jesus that's saving him, right? We get lost in the spit and we, oh, oh, yeah, Jesus, okay, that's where we need to be. And of course, the man is healed, but it's, it's also a glimpse into what the new Jerusalem is going to be like, Revelation 21 and 22. And then something that I think is kind of special, in the Greek, uh, very often, even though Mark is writing a gent- mostly Gentile audience, he gives clues to those that understand um, uh, the Old Testament. He gives clues to look back at certain texts in the Old Testament. And there's a, there's a clue in here where, where Mark does this again. Um, when Mark writes about the man who has the speech impediment, that translates the word megalalis, which literally means cannot speak. Um, now, what he's doing is he's pointing people back to Isaiah chapter 35. And I know some of you are like, wait a minute, the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. How could he be with a Greek word? How is he pointing them back to a Hebrew text? Well, in the second century B.C., so a couple hundred years before Jesus came on the scene, um, Greek had become the lingua franca or the common language all the way around the Mediterranean world. So from North Africa all around the Fertile Crescent and into um, Asia and, and even into Rome, Greek was the common language. If you wanted to go in the marketplace and do anything, you had to know Greek. And so the, the professional religious people, the rabbis and such, they got together and said, we should probably translate the Old Testament or the, the Hebrew Bible from Hebrew into Greek so that they can understand it. And so they appointed 70 rabbis to do this, and it literally took them decades to get this job accomplished. But these 70 rabbis translated the the, uh, Old Testament into Greek. It's commonly known as the Septuagint, which is a Latin word that means 70, or some people just call it the Greek Old Testament. And that word, megalalis, is used in Isaiah 35, and Mark knows that, and he's pointing back at that. And here's the passage. This is from Isaiah 35. Say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind will be open and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute, the megalalis, sings for joy. So Jesus does meet our needs and therefore we can be content in him. And the irony in the wordplay at the end of this this story at the end of chapter 7 is funny. The guy who couldn't speak can now speak, and Jesus instructs those who could speak to not say anything about it, and they can't stop speaking about it. There's just all this wonderful literary irony there. And that leads us to the last of these three narratives that, that demonstrates that Jesus is the ultimate and absolute meter of our needs, and so we can be content in him. It's, it's another story of him feeding a crowd of thousands with just a few loaves of bread and fish. In those days when again a great crowd had gathered and they, uh, um, and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd 
because they have been with me now for three days and they have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And Jesus answered them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. And he directed the crowd to sit on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples and set the, to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed the fish, he said that these also should be set before the people. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got in the boat with his disciples, and they went to the district of Dalmanutha. So we'll take just a cursory look at this story because David preached on a a similar story at the end of Mark chapter 6 just a few uh, weeks ago. Uh, More than any two texts in Mark, these two texts from Mark 6 and and Mark um, 8 here have similarities, but they also have enough differences that scholars are very clear in saying that they are two separate incidents. These are two different feedings. They're not a retelling of the same story. But in both story, you have the same main point. Jesus has compassion on us, and so he will take care of our everyday needs. You think about the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus goes to the people and he says, why are you so anxious about your life? Why are you so worried about what you're going to eat and what you're going to wear? Look at the birds. They, they don't sow or reap the way you and I are sowing. They don't do any of that stuff, and yet God takes care of them. Look at the lilies of the field. They neither toil nor spin. I love that phraseology there. You and I, you know what our lives are like? We're toiling and spinning. Now, I know Jesus didn't understand what a hamster wheel was back then, but that's kind of what it said. We're toiling and spinning. He says, you know, the, the lilies don't do that, and yet even in all of his splendor, Solomon was never dressed as these lilies were. So why are you anxious about your own life? You can be content in me. I am going to meet all of your needs. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things are going to be added on to you. And the reason I'm going to do this is because I have compassion for you. And Jesus says this explicitly in, in Mark 8, 3. He says, I have compassion on these people. The, the Greek word is splagnizomai. And it literally means your entrails or your vital organs. Here's how one person says it. Jesus feels in his gut for you. That's the depths to which Jesus has feelings for you and me. He feels it in his gut. But we also need to trust him. We need to place our faith in him. See, you and I, way too often, you and I are guilty of assessing our relationship with Jesus on our circumstances rather than on who he is and what he has already done for us. That's where the rubber meets the road for us. And so when we remember what he's done and who he is, we know we can live in contentment, knowing that our needs are going to be taken care of. And you look at that passage in, in Philippians 4. Mark, I'm sorry, Paul beautifully uh, outlines this for us here. He's wrapping up his letter to the church in Philippi, uh, Paul is in prison. The the year is 61 AD. He's in prison in Rome, and he's writing this church in Philippi telling them that they should be filled with joy the way he is, and he's in prison. And he says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've renewed your concern for me. What had happened was uh, the church of Philippi had sent Mark, uh, Paul, I keep calling him Mark, sent Paul a little bit of money so that help him with his expenses in prison, And they hadn't been able to do that for a while because there had been a famine and a drought in in Philippi. But now the the economy's coming back and the stock market's starting to go up again and people are making money again. And so they were able to send him some money. 
He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to show it. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. He learned how to be content. Let me tell you, as Christians, there are three things that God calls us to that we wish were spiritual gifts that God would just give us, but instead he tells us that we have to learn these things. They are contentment, perseverance, and patience. Don't you wish those were just spiritual gifts? God said, here, here's patience. You don't have to go through anything. And you just have patience. Here's perseverance. You don't ever have to practice perseverance. You're just a persevering person. Paul says no. James says no. All of these things. Uh, we have to learn these three things. And contentment is one of them. And Paul says, I've learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. He says, I know how to be brought low and I know what it is to abound. That's a status comment. I know what it means to be at the bottom of the ladder and I know what it means to be the CEO. He says, I, 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 know how to, I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, of abundance and need. That's, that's a, a, um, a wealth statement. I know what it means to live in poverty and I know what it means to live with lots and lots of money like all my needs are always going to be met. And I know the secret in all of those situations is to be content. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and needs, because I can do all things through him, Jesus Christ, who strengthens me. It's about Jesus being the focus of our life and him being the ultimate meter of our needs. And then he says, yet it was kind of you to share in my trouble. And you Philippians, you yourselves, know that from the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. It's good to give. God, God will find a way to bless you in your giving. And he says, I have received full payment and more. I'm well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you have sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to the Lord. They gave money to Paul, but it was a sacrifice to God. And then he says this, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. God supplies every one of our needs. And what that eventually leads to is the fact that we're going to be in the new Jerusalem with him. I'm telling you, you should read Revelation sometime. Don't become a Revelation freak, but read Revelation. It's good to know. Let me just read these first four verses of Revelation 21 for you. This is where we're headed if we're in Christ. John writes, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You know, right there, you get the definition of heaven, and you get the definition of hell. The definition of he heaven is the absolute permanent presence of God and the definition of hell is the absolute permanent absence of God. Which would you rather have? The better one is to be with God. We also know that in the New Jerusalem there's going to be no church. You know why? That is the church. Jesus is with us all the time there. 
There's going to be no need for light either. There's going to be no sun or moon, we're told, in the New Jerusalem because the glory of God will reign and it's so bright that we won't need the sun and the moon anymore. And best of all, verse 4, we're going to have every kind of healing possible. We're going to be made whole and complete the way God intended in Genesis 1 and 2, physically, emotionally, spiritually, every which way. And then if you look ahead to chapter 22, verse 2, talks about how in the center of the New Jerusalem, there's this beautiful river with water like crystal running down. And, and also running down the middle of, of, of the city is, is the tree of life with its 12 different fruits, one for each season. And then he says, and the leaves of the tree of life are for what? The healing of the nations. The races will be healed. The ethnicities, our differences will be healed in the New Jerusalem that's where we're headed because Jesus is the ultimate meter of all of our needs, physical, emotional, spiritual. That Isaiah 35 passage that I quoted, it says that the Messiah is going to come and save us at some point with vengeance and with divine retribution. But that's not how Jesus came the first time. He'll come the second time like that. Read Revelation 4 through 20, chapters 4 through 20. That's the way he's going to come the second time. He's going to come as the judge, and it's going to be really hard. But that's not how Jesus' earthly ministry is manifested, and it's not how his ministry through the church is manifested. Jesus is not interested in smiting people. He's interested in serving the church. He's not taking out his sword. He's not taking power. He's giving power away. He's serving the church, and he's giving power to the church. Jesus did not come originally to execute vengeance, but rather to do what? To take the vengeance of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God, everything that God has against sin, he took it upon him at the cross for us so that you and I would never have to face that vengeance. We never have to face the retribution. We never have to face God's wrath because Jesus did it all for us. Already at the cross, he meets every one of our needs and therefore you and I can be content. Let me pray and we'll go into our time of response and Cody and the band will come and lead us. God, we thank you for this truth, the truth of your gospel, the good news that, that our sin has separated us from you and yet Jesus has come to pay that debt for us and to give us new life through his resurrection. So God, help us to understand that. Help us to preach the gospel to ourselves every single day, to be reminded every day of what your son has done and therefore we don't have to do anything. He's done it all and we can rest in that. God, help us to do that. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.